Good morning. We have the privilege again to hear God's Word read and preached, to think that God would give to us that communication that we might know Him, that we might love Him, that we might adore Him. We turn this morning to Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God, the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not to angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every aspect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So far, reading of God's word. When I was younger, I would go to visit a friend's house, and they had a cuckoo clock on the wall. And it was always fascinating to think that at a certain time, the little door would open, and this little bird would come out and tweet. You think, fascinating how that could all work. But if you think that was an elaborate clock, there is one in France, in a cathedral, that is far more elaborate. It has 30,000 pieces to it. It has 90 dials and 124 indicators, and it tells the time in numerous cities. Indeed, it even tells you the time of the tides in eight cities or ports in France. And you think, who designed such things? Do Think about studying that or looking at a piece and you think, here's a piece moving and what in the world does it have to do with the time that's being displayed on this dial? Well, if we think of men's designs and marvel 
and can't quite figure it all out, what do we think about when we come to our God's design of creation, of the universe, of the salvation of his people? And we think of the intricacy, we think of the marvel, we think of the wonder of of God's design. And this morning as we look at our passage, we Think of that design, that glorious design of God to save a people for himself. And as we begin to think about that, our text has an overview, as it were, of the scope of this. The place of mankind in God's design, as he created them in the garden, he made them in his image, and he made them as the pinnacle of his creation. And we are reminded of that at the very first of our text. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. It was not angels as we saw in the first chapter, those mighty spiritual beings in all of their power and splendor. It was not they who were central to God's creation, but it was man. It was mankind who was to be the ruler over all, to have all things under his feet. But we know that this truth, that it was angels who were not the center, as again we are reminded in verse 16, it was not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, that man fell that he brought sin into the world, that he brought the judgment, that he was plunged into wickedness, into confusion, into despair, into darkness. And we think, well, was this the end of God's plan? To have man as the ruler? To subject all of creation under him to the glory of God? And we are reminded in our text, God's plan was not frustrated. Indeed, it encompassed even the fall of Adam and Eve. That there is a restoration that God knew, that God had designed. We're reminded of that already in the beginning of Hebrews when it speaks about Jesus being that radiance of the glory of God that we're reminded after making purification for sin that this lost state of man would be restored. That there would be that hope and glory once again. And we are reminded in our passage in verse 9, how does this come about? By the grace of God. It is not that Adam and Eve said, oh, we messed up, we better make up for it. It was the grace of God. And it was God's design beyond the fullness of our comprehension, that knew all these things. And we we see that in Ephesians, where at the opening, we are told about the glory of God's design. And we are reminded, just as God chose us in Him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. Here's something of the scope of what God does and accomplishes. 
And in our text, we see how a sketch is given of how this is accomplished. And there is that suffering that leads to glory. The suffering that leads to glory that is true for Jesus. And we think, what a design. It is not something that you and I would think of. How do we get to glory? And we would say, not through suffering, but through conquering, through triumph. And yet, for Jesus, it is through suffering. And our writer goes back to Psalm 8. Here is a psalm that speaks about creation, that thinks about man as created and God's relationship to man. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Here was the design of God for Adam and Eve and for their descendants. And yet, the writer knows that this was turned upside down. That instead of ruling over creation, now creation and death ruled over Adam and Eve and their descendants. That this is what the reality was. And so he says, but we do not see everything in subjection to him. If this was the design of God, we don't see it. But now he shifts. Because in Adam, as representative of all people, sin and destruction came. But now, a shift, because there was another who was representative. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And so the psalm is now applied to Jesus, that he is the one who has come. And for a little while he was made lower than the angels as he assumed our nature. And this transition now focuses on God's design. That in the midst of the terrible effects of sin, of the judgment upon the whole world, Yet here is God working and His Son coming. And that focus then, we see in verse 9, the suffering of death. Here is that work of Jesus. As He is made for a little while lower than the angels, it leads to the suffering of death. Jesus' suffering was through his whole life. As he saw the wickedness of man. As he saw those who would take the good gifts of God and seek to use them against God. As he saw men seeking to exalt themselves against God who gave them life and breath. The Father, whom he loved with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. And yet the focus is on the suffering of death. Why death? Because the judgment of God upon Adam and Eve was a sentence of death. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die, was a threat of eating of the tree. 
And this, this judgment, this judgment upon Adam and Eve and upon their descendants, this was the judgment that Jesus took. It was that death that he died. It was a death that was the judgment of God that came upon him, was crucified on a cross, hung between heaven and earth. And from the Old Testament, we know that those who were judged, those who were hung upon a tree, between heaven and earth, rejected by men, rejected by God, suffering that judgment, this is what Jesus suffered. Here was his suffering. We know that it led to glory. We see that in our text. For a little while, made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Because he took on this task. Because he took on this as God's champion. That he was the one who came to stand against Satan. Against the devil who had that authority, who had that power, who could bring about death now because men had sinned. And he, the founder, or another translation might be the champion of their salvation, is Jesus. We think again in context of the Old Testament as the whole book of Hebrews is, is thinking about the Old Testament, and we think of those champions, those who led God's people. We might think of David, who faced another champion of the Philistines, Goliath, that giant who stood and defied God and the, the nation, the army of Saul. And we think of David, who comes to fight against him, an unlikely champion perhaps, but he went forth in the confidence of God. Not in the strength or wisdom of men, but as the champion of God who would enable him to gain the victory. And we think how David took that upon himself. as he did so in reliance on God alone. And so Jesus as well, coming into the world, in reliance upon his Father, as he faced a far greater enemy, as he faced all the forces of wickedness arrayed against him, as he humbled himself and took on that judgment. We are reminded as... Numerous times in this church we have heard those words from Philippians chapter 2 of Jesus and his humility and his humiliation being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That that suffering of Jesus leads to his glory. That what he accomplished in all of creation, all the world, overthrowing wickedness, overcoming the judgment, receiving that in himself that he might be the source 
of life. And Jesus therefore conquered and received that crown of honor and glory. But the question might be, how does that help us? We might think of someone who works very hard and is at the right place at the right time and establishes a company, becomes very rich, and we say, well, that's wonderful, but that doesn't help me. I'm not related to him. I'm not going to get anything from him. So Jesus accomplished this, receives this glory and honor, and we say, well, how does that help us? Because we are those who are sinners. And this is what our text then talks about. That Jesus' suffering and that led to his glory, there is a way now that the suffering saves those who are descendants of Abraham. How does Jesus do this? First of all, he shares in our nature. Jesus is incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, taking on flesh and blood, that he might represent us, that he might come before God as one of us. Now, we think of how we were alienated from God. How, how could we come before God? We needed someone else. But someone who could speak for us. Someone who shared in our nature. We think of how in human relationships and between nations, you, you send ambassadors, somebody who can represent you. And, and who is sent then? Imagine a, a leader, a president, who would say, well, we need somebody to go and represent us, and, and so I'm going to send Rex. And people say, who's Rex? And he says, that's my dog. You say, well, how is a dog going to represent us? All a dog can do is bark. How are they going to communicate? There is the wrong nature. We need another person to go and represent us. And so Jesus, if he is going to represent us, takes our nature, flesh and blood, to be able to act on our behalf. We think about the first Adam who acted on our behalf, and he sinned and fell. And because of that, we are all sinners. We are all under God's judgment. Because he acted not only for himself, but for all of his descendants. And the judgment then comes upon us. And Jesus then is referred to as the second Adam. The last Adam, because he is able again to represent, because he shares in our nature. And this was a great hope for people. In the Old Testament, again and again, what, was, what were the people to do? They were to come before God and they offered sacrifices. But the sacrifices could not cleanse them. It represented that there was judgment. There was life that was taken. 
that of an animal. But it could not remove sin. They did not share in the nature of people. But Jesus comes and he then takes on their nature and he dies for them. This is what is the reference, suffering of death. It is through death. Verse 9 speaks about that he might taste death for everyone. It was not simply for himself that he would be crowned with glory and honor, but that he might taste death for everyone. And again in verse 14, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is, the devil. This is what Jesus does. This this is part of that scope of God's work. That design of God, that working all things in preparation for the coming of Jesus, that he might die. Now, we might say, well, if Jesus died and that took care of sin, what about when I die? Does that take care of my sin? And the answer is no. The difference is that we are sinners and that our death is just part of our judgment and does not change us. But Jesus was different in that all of his life was a preparation for that sacrifice. That he was the one who was holy, harmless, undefiled. That there was no sin in him. That he was perfect, pure, holy. And that he did not deserve to die. He had lived a perfect life. Honoring God in every thought and word and deed. And he was therefore able to be offered as a sacrifice. What could we offer to God? Our death is different. We cannot offer God anything that is of value to Him. We may think of the debt of sin that we have. And how can we pay it? We don't have the right currency. You might think of it, a child overhears their parents saying, I'm not sure we have enough money. And the child says, oh, don't worry, I've got lots, I'll bring it to you. And they come with this wad of money and it's monopoly money. (laughs) And we say, that won't quite work. And so it is, as, as we come to God, we don't have the right currency. It is of no value to pay our debt. But here, here is the glory. Here is God's design. How is he going to bring many sons to glory? We see in verse 17. He had to be made like his brethren, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation, to make satisfaction for their sins. Jesus had that currency. He had that perfection in his life, in that devotion, 
but he did so as representative. He did that as a second Adam. He did it as one who lived a perfect life to God. And therefore, he could make that satisfaction. The judgment of God against sin that we could never satisfy. God's design is that it would be Jesus who makes satisfaction, who pays that debt. And it is God who had prepared throughout the Old Testament for the people to understand this. And the book of Hebrews will explore that further and further, and we will look at that in, in future sermons. But here, that, that grand scope, that grand design, is God bringing many sons to glory through Jesus Christ, through His death, through His suffering. And so, it is Jesus who sanctifies them, who makes them holy, so that they might have a relationship to God, that they might have fellowship with God. This is what was necessary, and this is what Jesus does. There are quotes from the Old Testament. We see that in verse 12 and 13. The identification of Jesus with his people. I will tell of your name to my brothers. I will put my trust in him, in God. This is what a relationship to God is defined by, that trust in God. And therefore Jesus says, Behold, I and the children God has given me. There is that identification but we, we note in verse 16 that this help, while it is not for angels, it is the offspring of Abraham. Now, why doesn't it say the offspring of Adam? Why does it say Abraham? Because if we simply define it as the offspring of Adam, that is all people. But God's salvation is for those who trust in Jesus Christ. You see, there are the riches and the glory of Jesus, but how are they obtained? How does he become our representative? It is through faith in him. And this is what defines those who are Christians. Those who have seen their own bankruptcy and say it is Jesus alone who is able to provide what I need. And therefore there is a trust in him. And Abraham was the one who trusted God. He believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. It was that trust, that faith. And therefore it defines the offspring of Abraham. And here is the exhortation to us. Are we Children of Abraham, offspring of Abraham, by faith. Because this was what was important. The Apostle Paul demonstrates that in Romans 4 when he writes about, therefore our salvation, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those of the law, 
In other words, the Jews who understood the Old Testament, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Abraham's faith, that trust in God, was the foundation of his salvation. And the same is true for all who trust in Jesus. And therefore, Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah was to come, who would call men and women and children to himself, and who would say, my brothers, my mother, my sisters, they are the ones who share in the glory of Jesus. They are sanctified and brought to that hope of glory. And that glory is something that Jesus already enjoys. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the one ruling over the nations, gathering his people. And we will share in that with him. We think of how the New Testament ending in the book of Revelation, reminds us that the end of mankind, the descendants of Abraham, share in the rule with Christ. Where heaven is described, there will be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. The fulfillment of that plan of God, of people who would reign with Christ forever. This is the glory that God displays. This is the grace of God that he gives to all who trust in Jesus. And that is our hope, our confidence as believers in Jesus. But sometimes... There are those who say, well, how come I don't experience that now? How come my life is so hard? How come after I believed in Jesus, it seemed that things got more difficult? And there were more burdens that I had. And the scripture gives us an answer for that. For though we have our portion in Jesus. Though we have the confidence and the assurance that where Jesus is, we will also be. That we are reminded in the book of Romans that though the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, it goes on to say, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. You see, our, our union, our participation with Christ means that here there is still the suffering in this life that we are called to endure. And yes, Christ is the one who has taken out the sting of death, but we will still die. Our entrance into glory is still through the enemy, death. And so we are reminded that this glory 
that is ours in Christ will not come to that full realization until we are resurrected, till we are raised with Christ and will rule with Him forever. But what a confidence we have. And we think in light of that, we, we acknowledge with the Apostle Paul that the sufferings of this life that are momentary, we think our text again, for a little while made lower than the angels. The suffering is momentary. The glory is everlasting. And we look at Jesus, who endured death, the judgment of God, that we might be those who receive that glory that are exalted with Jesus Christ to behold our God face to face, to be made perfect and to enjoy our God forever. This is the hope. And this is that glorious design of God in all of creation where every atom, every molecule, every person is known and directed by God. And indeed, we say, how marvelous the scope of this design and that God would choose me, a sinner, and say to you, to me, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There is our hope. There is our confidence and we marvel at the work of God that he would give us so great a Savior and so great a salvation. Amen. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our God, we come acknowledging that we cannot begin to grasp the scope of your glorious design in all of creation. And yet we are those who are the objects of your love and grace in Jesus Christ. How we pray that as we trust in him, that we may be given that assurance that our Savior has accomplished the fullness of our salvation, that we may have that confidence as we walk in this life through sufferings and trials, yes, but in the hope and in the knowledge that we have one who has gone before us and one who will bring us to himself to enjoy that glory that he has accomplished on our behalf, taking on our nature that he might represent us and bring us to glory. In his name we pray, amen.